The following content contains adult subject matter, including descriptions of sexual abuse of minors, and is intended for adult consumption only. It may not be suitable for all audiences, therefore discretion is advised. Following World War II, a Christian village was created in southern Chile, called Colonia Dignidad. It was led by a former Nazi who fled Germany after being charged with child abuse. His name was Paul Schaefer. Over the course of 30-plus years, Paul imprisoned and sexually abused children in his care. But despite evidence against him, he still managed to keep both the Chilean and German governments on his side. Until it all came crashing down around him. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sinister Societies, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Every week, we're going to cover your favorite cults, faith followers, and secret societies. We'll look at how some of the biggest secretive societies and cults have made their fortunes. And how they've also managed to run in plain sight and permeate into your everyday life. And yes, today we're going to get into the Colonia Dignidad and Paul Schaefer, a German youth preacher, Kelsa Pries, and Nazi, who ended up creating one of the most notorious religious groups in South America. We'll get into Paul's obsession with sin confessions and how that led to an atmosphere of paranoia and insulation. And we'll also get into the ties between Paul and Chile's former leader, Augusto Pinochet, who turned the colony into an interrogation and execution center for political dissidents. It's got it all this episode. It does. It's got it all so much. We've actually done it on Red Hand. We have. We have done it. So we are very familiar with this case. And if that introduction you just listened to makes you think, eh, clickbait, listen bait, ear bait, it's not. I just had like a very vivid, intrusive thought of a severed ear being on the end of a fishing line. Oh, I thought you were going to say like an earwig going into no, your like ear. No, an earworm. No, no, much worse than that. Oh. Dis- you'd probably catch quite a few f- fish with a dismembered ear. Can you dismember an ear or does it have to be an arm or a leg? I reckon you can dismember an ear. A dismembered ear? A disembodied ear? Disembodied, I think. Ooh. Okay, well, we'll open it to the floor later. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. No matter what you're looking for in a non-alcoholic beer, there's only one name that has it all. Athletic Brewing Co. Full flavor? It's athletic. Huge variety? It's athletic. Award-winning styles you can get online, at the bar, or the grocery store? It's athletic. 
In fact, when it comes to amazing non-alcoholic beer, there's no question. It's athletic. Ask for it and find out. Go to askforathletic.com to find your closest retailer today. Near beer. So let's get into Paul Schaefer's early life and how he came to build the Colonia Dignidad. Paul was born in Germany in 1921. He was apparently a clumsy child. So clumsy, in fact, that he gouged his eye out while trying to untie a shoelace with a fork. That sounds like a lie. (laughs) (laughs) I have worked extremely hard Mm. to not be as clumsy as I used to be. Mm. But even I don't think I could manage to gouge my eye out with a fork while untying a shoe. Falling downstairs, no problem. I'm a professional. That I could see. But my main question about Paul's eye loss story is why is a fork involved in the process of tying your shoe? Well, one would assume Mm. that the shoelace was tied very tight and he needed to wiggle in the knot I see. to release it. If you'd done the bunny hoops, you'd just pull the bit at the end. Well, I think clearly they weren't teaching bunny hoops in, <laughs> and Nazi in, Germany. in Pre-Nazi Weimar Germany. Republic. <laughs> he was lucky to have a shoelace. <laughs> he just had the one and a fork. <laughs> yeah, he just, just one, one shoelace and then his other shoe was just fastened to his bony foot with a fork stabbed through it. So this injury led to his rejection from the Nazis' SS Corps later in life. So, you know, he really just... Little boy Paul really fucked over big boy Nazi Paul. And instead of joining the Nazi SS Corps, he spent World War II working as a nurse at a field hospital in France. And he later claimed that his glass eye was from a war injury. Shark attack. A shark attack, war injury, Nazi... No, because he's the Nazi. He's like the Allies. The Allies shark. Mm. Allied shark. Yeah, Well, they were strapping bombs to all sorts of things. After the war, Paul worked as a youth leader. Paul's time while he was working as a youth leader in the Evangelical Free Church did not last very long because he was fired on suspicion that he was mistreating some of the boys in his group. Paul continued to preach. According to a 2008 profile by Bruce Falconer in American Heritage, Paul travelled Germany with a guitar and dressed in lederhosen and encouraged people to confess their sins. He also preached sexual abstinence. To be fair, nothing's going to turn me off more than lederhosen. Mm. Yes, he really is preaching to the converted (laughs) when he's wearing lederhosen. So while the rest of Germany was reeling from World War II and its aftermath, Paul was apparently known for being positive and upbeat. One former follower described him as, quote, always in a good mood and never depressed. I think this is the thing. If you're really a really fucking bad person, you probably loved it then. Yeah, and there's nothing that the world needs more than a jovial Nazi. Mm. Sell it to the children. You're right. And that attitude gained him followers, many of them widows of those who had died in the war, and the widows brought their children with them. Loads of them kicking about. Yeah. Eventually, he opened his own congregation and orphanage. So in order to join this congregation slash orphanage, Members had to pay 10% of their income to Paul. Ding, la, la, ding, la, ding, la, ding, <laughs> ding, ding. You can keep going, they're still taking it out. <laughs> so they're giving up 10%. They're also confessing their sins daily. Even the Catholics only make you do it once a week. Daily? Mm. Who's committing enough sins that you have to confess daily? Well, these widows, apparently. Mm. <laughs> these wi- And these children. <laughs> yeah. These fucking semi-orphan children. Yeah, yeah. 
And it was all going reasonably swimmingly, for Paul at least. But then the mothers of two boys at the orphanage told authorities that Paul had molested their sons. An arrest warrant was issued and Paul initially fled to the Middle East to figure out where he could relocate his congregation. Paul ended up meeting the Chilean ambassador to Germany there, who was unaware of his legal troubles and got an invite to Chile. Why not? For context, many countries in South America became safe havens for former Nazis after the war. And you know how they got there? Uh, Operation Paperclip? No. Oh. Operation Paperclip is stealing Nazi science. Uh, and taking them to the US. Yes, but this, the South American one, was via Italy and it was called the Rat Line. Uh, and there was specifically a very high up guy in the Vatican who was a Nazi sympathizer. So all of the Nazis would be in hiding, usually in Austria. And then if they could get to Italy and they could get an audience with this like pro-Nazi priest straight on the boat to Argentina, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where they spread <laughs> to other places. So there were a lot of, especially in South America and in Italy after the war, there were a lot of Nazi sympathizers kicking around. So it wasn't difficult to find them. Yes. In January 1961, Paul arrived in Santiago, Chile. He purchased an abandoned ranch on 4,400 acres of land in a rural area a few hundred miles south of the capital city. Ten members of his congregation from Germany joined him, and they began to build on the land. And the ranch became known as Colonia Dignidad, or Dignity Colony. It's not the word I would use for child abuse, but (laughs) moving on. By 1963, the colony had grown to around 230 residents. Many of them were Paul's former followers who'd moved from Germany. The colony was developed in the style of a Bavarian village. There were gardens and water fountains, as well as apartments, schools, chapels, a bakery and factories. There was also a state-subsidised hospital where free medical care was offered to surrounding villages. It was a poor area, so that was pretty welcome. And if you're curing people's illnesses they will look the other way quite a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And they might also join your fucking cult. And bring their children. The population continued to expand as Paul and his followers adopted Chilean children in need and moved them into residences on the property. I think by this stage in Sinister Society's A Spotify original from Parcast, we all know where this is headed. When a Nazi opens an orphanage (laughs) in rural Chile... I think just rural anything Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with orphanage also is... And just sprinkle in Nazi. I mean, the Nazi is is particularly anomalous. It's it's kind of like a bonus. It's like a a sick bonus. That's what I mean. It's like the hundreds and thousands, but they're made of something really horrible. The swastika-shaped hundreds and thousands. The swastika-shaped hundreds and thousands, but they're made out of glass on top of our ice cream. But the ice cream is Hitler. (laughs) Yeah. But that's also saying that the ice cream is an orphanage in rural somewhere. Anyway, you get it. You get it. Yeah, stop making us earn our keep. We're done. (laughs) Stop making us think of original things to say. Let's move on. So coming back to life on Dignity Colony or Colonia Dignidad, as you can imagine, with any sort of cult, life was entirely communal. Even family units were not recognised. Instead, residents were divided by age and sex. Children spent the first six years of their lives in the colony's communal nursery. Then, at age six, boys joined a group called the Wedges, which uh, sounds like a terrible fucking band from the early 90s. Or Mm. the Wedgies. Like the bullying tactic. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So it would be like, 
Nelson Muntz and the Wedgies. Ah, got it. Except got it's it. not that. It definitely says Wedges. Paul Schaefer and the Wedgies. Paul Schaefer and the Wedgies versus the potato waffles and the smiley faces. <laughs> they only had to stay in the Wedges for a little while, for about, well, not for a little while, actually, for nine years, because then at age 15, they were moved into the Army of Salvation. That's very quick maths. Well done. Mm-hmm. Men in their mid-30s joined the elder servants. At age 50, they became Comalos. And uh, here's a little note from producers uh, Gemma and Tracy. The term Comalos appears to have absolutely no clear translation or meaning, so it's just a bit of made-up fun. So girls went through a similar progression, except with different group names. Older women were part of a group called the Grannies. Less fun. Yeah. In Korean, the word for, like, grandma essentially is Ajima. Ajima also means sex worker. Also a country that claims to have absolutely no organised crime. Interesting, interesting. So the result of this communal system was that colony members often didn't know who their parents or their siblings were, which is very much part of the plan. Mm. It's not a flaw in the system, it is the system. That way, you haven't got any alliances to anybody else. Mm -hmm. Your alliance is only to the colony and to Paul Schaefer. So adults were referred to as either uncle or aunt. And Paul, this is so fucking weird, Paul Schaefer was called the permanent uncle, which sounds like the really needy man that your uh, (laughs) mum marries when you're 50. (laughs) I'm your permanent uncle now. (laughs) Fuck it out. (laughs) It's like, um, I think it's Kim Il-sung who's the permanent president of, Mm -hmm. permanent leader, sorry, of North Korea. They'd like a legacy. Coming up, we'll get into Paul's religious beliefs, as well as the way he was able to build what one lawyer described to Al Jazeera News as a, quote, paedophile's paradise. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from the Spotify original from Parcast, Cults. Next on our series, a four-part deep dive into the religious movement known as the Moonies. Sushi, mass weddings, political coups. Discover the many business ventures, beliefs, and scandals of this headline-making sect. This is one special you do not want to miss. You can also catch up on hundreds of classic episodes and new ones each week by following Cults free on Spotify. Find out what turns a natural-born leader into a vessel for wreaking havoc. Enjoy a new episode of Cults every Tuesday, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. So let's get into Paul Schaefer's religious teachings and how they came to dictate life in Colonia Dignidad. Paul mandated three rules for the colony. No private conversations. He reportedly used to say, quote, if two are gathered, they are under the devil. If three are gathered, 
they are under Jesus, which took me a minute to process that in my head. But he's basically like, if there's an earwigger, that's fine. No secret midnight sneaking. Absolutely. Even broad daylight sneaking. It's off the table. No, the devil never sleeps. Also, number two of his mandates, no leaving the property without permission from Paul himself, the perma-uncle. Number three, all sins in both thought and action must be confessed to Paul. And this was the way to salvation, which is a very crucial deviation from Catholic doctrine where thoughts are fine, which is how all of the priests don't get sacked. The line of the church is like, as long as they're not doing it, that's okay. Yeah. As long as it stays in your brain palace, that's fine. It's a very clear deviation from the papists. Uh-huh. So we already know there was daily confession meetings and public confessions during meal times and weekly group confessions on Sundays. Oh my God, give it a fucking rest. Well, you just have to make stuff up. <laughs> yeah. As I did on my first ever confession. What was your first ever confession? Okay, so some of it I did do. Uh-huh. But like, you have to like... Tell us all of it and then we'll guess the bit that you really did do. <laughs> I definitely confessed to swearing. So you're uh-huh. like seven when this is... Mm-hmm. So I definitely confessed to swearing. And I confessed to kicking a boy in the dick, but he did deserve it. I got in so much trouble for that. You know, like those like explosive parental tellings off that you never, yes. ever forget. Yes. His name was Jack Brinklow. I remember it like it was yesterday. I thought I was going to die. <laughs> <laughs> He's in the army now. Um, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> and I think I also confessed to... There was something else. Oh, I confessed to wanting to push my sister down the stairs swearing <laughs> no it was my sister down the stairs and it's a lie because I lived in a bungalow ah. so, so I wanted to push her down something Got just it. not stairs sneaky. I don't know why I thought stairs was better sneaky but then I was informed that I didn't have to confess thoughts so that was Got okay. it. but yeah 10 our fathers 10 how Marys Bob's your uncle Fanny's your aunt me and God we're square yeah hand me that Eucharist <laughs> what's the Eucharist it's the the bread uh, got it yeah yeah the body of Christ got it yeah, enough. <laughs> let's put let's lock that back up in the tabernacle. Of I didn't know how to. Second. I didn't know how to segue um, back into this. So I was like, I'll leave it to her. So, during these group confessions, which were during meal times, the names of sinners would be read aloud. So everyone basically, it's just a register. Yeah, I was um, going to say because everyone has to confess all the time, so it's like read everyone's name out. But maybe. Because it's every day, maybe you don't have to confess Uh. every day. There's just a confession every day. So maybe most days everyone's just sitting on their hands being like, nope, not me. Maybe this is undermining this cult philosophy because obviously it worked for a very long Mm. time. But I do kind of feel like if you make everyone confess all the time, doesn't it kind of take the wind out of it a little bit? Because I'm like, oh, well, we all have to do it now. So like, whatever. I think yes and no. I think the public element of it Keeps it fresh. Keeps it fresh. I see, I see. And, oh, this is a good one. There's an extra added piece of flavorful spice to this confession circus. If you reported someone else's sin... Oh, there you go. You were at once absolved of your sin in return. It's like living on Love Island. It is living on Love Island. Except with more child sexual abuse. And less chlamydia. (laughs) I'm sure they all get tested before they go. (laughs) So Paul was the ultimate authority at the colony. Of course, he was the permanent uncle. His birthday was the only date that was celebrated. God, he's so pathetic. That's so pathetic. 
He's a grown fucking man. He's somebody's permanent uncle. Can we just grow up? <laughs> so this was declared. So the whole, like, we're going to celebrate permanent uncle Paul Shaver's birthday every year was declared after he apparently staged a fake shooting death of Santa Claus for the colony's children in the 1970s. I remember this from when we covered it on Red Handed. He literally had somebody dress up as Santa Claus and then pretended to shoot that person to death in front of the kids at the colony. Yeah. Fun. You know who else did a fake shooting? Jim Jones. But it was off himself, not, uh, not Father Christmas. Yes. I mean, this is a very, like... This is a poor, poor man's Jim Jones. A poor man's Jim Jones. And also, I was going to say, a poor allegory for just, like... It's not even an allegory, whatever. It's, like, a, such a bait-ass, like, Christmas is dead. He literally shoots Santa in front of these kids. Yeah. God, he's so on the nose. <laughs> well, he's German. <laughs> so every aspect of life, as you can imagine, was strictly controlled by Paul and his inner circle. Members were only allowed to have a few sets of clothes with them at any given time. Classic cultish behaviour. The rest of their possessions, including their shoes, were locked away and accessible only when needed. Presumably he's uh, hung on to a lifelong fear of shoes and shoelaces. Possibly. Well, you would if you forked your eye out. You would. You'd be like, so you're like someone invent Velcro for this man already. No, no one's actually, wearing shoes around me. I'm almost certain that Velcro was an Operation Paperclip invention. I feel like it was. Yeah. I feel like it was. So that so he was a bit too late. Uh, quite. So residents, including children as young as seven, worked in the fields seven days a week, and workdays could last for twelve hours or longer, with only a short lunch break. All work was, of course, unpaid and considered for the greater good of the community. Women were considered dangerous to men, which is obviously correct, because they could cause them to stray from the path of God. Interesting, because Paul Schaefer's not buying what women are selling. Mm, mm, no. <laughs> so the women, to stop the men from being tempted, wore loose potato sacks over their dresses and kept their hair in tight buns, because you know what they say... <laughs> Loose bun, loose morals. I mean, quite. Even though the women were made to look as unattractive as humanly possible by wearing hessian sacks and keeping their hair in tight buns, which we all know makes you look like a naked mole rat, couples occasionally managed to get together despite the tight restrictions. And Paul dictated who could marry whom. He discouraged procreation, though, which is odd for a child molester, and would mostly pair men who wanted to marry with women who were past childbearing age. Yeah, I remember this. And I remember being confused because a cult's usual vibe is loads more kids. Mm. We've got to get bigger. Yeah. But yeah, he's not for it. Well, maybe because, you know, statistically speaking, some of those babies are going to be boybies and the boybies are going to grow into men and the men are going to fight you. This is true, but he also loves the boybies. Yeah, he In does. a sick way. He does love the boybies, but they don't stay boybies forever. Just like in Peter Pan. So when women did become pregnant, they were kept apart from the community until they gave birth. At that point, the baby would be separated from their mother and raised communally in the group system, like we mentioned earlier. In the 30 plus years that Paul led the colony, only about 60 children were born. That's staggering. Between 1975 and 1989, there were zero births. How many years is that? That is... 11? No, 14. Lots of years. No boybies or girlbies. That's shocking. A select group of young boys worked for Paul as what he called sprinters. They would help him with tasks, from running to grab something to holding a phone up for him as he spoke. Paul had a small bed set up next to his own. Children were reportedly given sedatives and would sleep there. 
and this is where the abuse would take place. It was apparently very well known that Paul was a paedophile and a child sex offender. A lawyer who represented victims of the Colonia Dignidad said the abuse was organised and ritualised. And it wasn't just the paedophilia that was taking place. Survivors who made it out of the colony have told stories of abuse and imprisonment. One survivor was adopted by the colony when he was just 10. Paul marked him as a troubled teenager and accused him of stealing keys to one of the dorms. He said he was then beaten unconscious and woke up in one of the colony's hospitals, where he says he remained for 31 years. At the hospital, the man recalls being given daily injections, pills and electric shock treatments. He was escorted to and from work, forced to eat meals alone and isolated from the rest of the colony, although he managed to escape in 2003. The stories of abuse weren't limited to residents of the colony. People who lived in the surrounding lands were also affected. The colony eventually grew from its original 4,400 acres to 32,000 acres. Wowzers, that is eight times bigger. How? They're just like buying up all this land from everybody who lives around them. Wowzers, trousers. Shocking. So this growth came from taking over nearby land, sometimes by force. In one case, Paul wanted land with a chapel on it near the colony's entrance. But the nuns who lived there wanted to stay. So members of the colony cut off the nuns' water supply, stole their animals, fired weapons, and shined lights through their windows at night. In later years, they were said to have circulated doctored videos of some of the nuns in orgies with priests. And the colony eventually got the land after the nuns' house was burned to the ground. Imagine revenge pawning nuns. Such a millennial revenge. But these guys were way ahead of the time. So ahead of the time. Just like some fucking sat in a colony in rural Chile doing yeah. some deep fake like, right. on some nuns. Who knows how to use <laughs> Premiere Pro? Me, 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 me. <laughs> Up next, we'll get into the colony security force, their collaboration with Chilean leader Augusto Pinochet, and Paul's eventual downfall. All right, let's get into Paul Schaefer's secret unit of armed followers and their collaboration with Chilean leader Augusto Pinochet. Paul Schaefer's Colonia Dignidad had two common enemies. The first was the devil, and the second was the enemy of everyone after World War II, after they liberated all those death camps, the communists. This may have factored into his reasoning for heavily fortifying the commune with watchtowers, eight-foot-high barbed wire fences, and a fleet of watchmen. They also had guard dogs that helped to patrol the perimeter. There was an elaborate alarm system with tripwires and cameras hidden in stones. And while it may have kept so-called communists out, it also helped to prevent escapes. One former member of the colony tried to escape from the commune twice, once in 1962 and again in 1964, but was brought back by the colony's security force. In 1966, the former member managed to escape a third time and made it to the German embassy in Santiago. A group of Paul's followers attempted to enter the safe house to capture him, but they were fought off by police. The former member eventually escaped back to Germany, 
where he shared his story. In September 1973, Chile's president was overthrown by Augusto Pinochet, who was the country's military council leader. Pinochet's 15-plus years in power were marked by a violent crackdown against anyone who opposed his regime. Pinochet created a national intelligence directorate group known as DINA that disappeared political enemies by sending them to secret torture and execution sites. The colonial dignidad, in an informal alliance with Pinochet's government, became one of those sites. Just a side note here, I guess one of the main reasons that Pinochet and Paul Schaefer felt like they could work together is because, of course, they shared a common enemy, the communists. Just find it deliciously ironic that someone running a commune hates the communists. Literally, that the whole of like, you don't need to raise your kids, the state will raise your kids, the yeah. colony will do that. You don't need money. Yeah, yeah, you don't yeah. need private property. What are you talking about? I hate those goddamn communists. Yep. Yeah, it is very, you're right, it's very ironic. So Paul turned to the Pinochet government for protection and government support, while Pinochet and the Dina turned to Paul for his expertise in torture. He is a Nazi, after all. He is a Nazi, but too blind for the SS. Yes, but not too blind for Pinochet. No. And also, on top of being a Nazi, he's also got, what was it, 32,000 acres yes, yeah. of land in rural Chile. And they're like, huh, we could use that for a private execution and torture camp. The communist dream. <laughs> it's not a gulag. Stop calling it a gulag. Who fucking said that? So a former member of a left-wing group who survived imprisonment at the colony recalls being tortured with electrodes. He also said that he saw Paul in the underground chamber where he was held and tortured. So again... This person's statement is making it clear that Paul wasn't just like, I don't know, subletting some of his land to the Chilean government and not knowing what was going on. He was intimately involved in what was going on. Pinochet left power in 1990, the year that I graced this earth. And the alliance between the Chilean government and the colony was over. The newly elected democratic government revoked the colony's status as a non-profit and began an audit of their businesses, Uh which famously on this show does not end well. But life on the colony continued as usual. Paul even launched a new program called the Intensive Boarding School for Chilean students under the age of 18 to live and study. In the winter of 1996, a 12-year-old student managed to get a note to his mother that read, take me out of here, he raped me. The student was taken to a physician who corroborated his story. A warrant was issued by the government for Paul's arrest and a group of police came to the compound to arrest him, but they couldn't find him. Colony members were apparently unhelpful. One officer recalled that the people there were, quote, like zombies or maybe robots. Police continued to raid the compound, searching for Paul. They actually conducted over 30 raids over the years. It's believed that Paul fled the compound at some point in 1997. Although they couldn't find Paul, they did manage to find evidence of Dina activities. Followers showed investigators where files on Pinochet's enemies were kept and where rumoured mass graves had been. Now, while the graves were empty, investigators did find car parts from the autos of missing political dissidents. And in 2005, they found a mass of military weapons, including hundreds of machine guns, grenades, mines, rocket launchers and surface-to-air missiles. 
In March 2005, Paul was traced to a home near Buenos Aires, Argentina, and arrested. He was extradited to Chile and charged with the sexual abuse of 25 minors. It is crazy to me, and this is just my inability to understand the passage of time, but an actual Nazi still kicking it in 2005. Yep, yep, yep. This just came into my head because Nazis. You know that like Coco Chanel thing? It's like, oh, before you leave the house, take off the last piece of jewelry you put on. Someone did a tweet about it. They're like, oh, Coco Chanel took off the last piece of jewelry she put on before she left the house for her job as a Nazi spy. <laughs> Yeah, it was a giant gold swastika medallion. (laughs) So the following year, Paul Schaefer was convicted of sexual abuse and given a 20-year sentence. A few months later, he was given an additional three-year sentence for weapons violations, and then a seven-year sentence for homicide and a three-year sentence for torture. Paul died in prison in 2010. The Colonia Dignidad was taken over by the government and renamed Villa Baviera, It's now a German-themed resort with a hotel and restaurants, and it's open to the tourists. And it's called, whatever the German translation is, a Rancho Rancho Relaxo. (laughs) What would the German translation of Rancho Relaxo be? (laughs) Just sit down and have a very good time. German for ranch. (laughs) German for ranch Oh, look, I'm German for relax. Come on, guys. What is ranch in German? Oh, okay, I got it. Okay. (laughs) go on I've just looked up relax as well I've got relax okay it's a German for ranch is Weifam and relax is Enspan und Seischig Weifam Einspan Seischig whatever you will have a good time in a very orderly manner Oh my God. Honestly, this is one of the craziest stories that we've come across in our five, six years of true crime podcasting. Yes, it's a real one for the books. It goes on for an extortionately long time Mm -hmm. as well. But if you're ever in Chile, take yourself down to Rancho Relaxo. Down to Weifam. Yeah, great. Well done. Tut mir leid, das ist bad, komo. That's all I remember from year nine German. Which means, sorry, I'm late. (laughs) Sorry, I'm late and I wasn't listening. (laughs) So that's it, guys. That is the case of Colonia Dignidad and Mr. Paul Schaefer. Thank you so much for listening. I remain Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. For today's episode, we referenced reporting from The American Scholar, specifically the essay The Torture Colony by Bruce Faulkner, a new special by Al Jazeera, and the documentary series A Sinister Sect, Colonia Dignidad on Netflix. Remember to follow Sinister Societies on Spotify to get a brand new episode every week. You can listen to this and all other episodes of Sinister Societies for free exclusively on Spotify. And if you like this show, follow at Parcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Parcast Network on the Twitter. And if you like us and you want to hear us talk about some other true crime, you can do so by coming on over to listen to Red Handed, the podcast, anywhere you listen to your podcast. We, as Hannah said earlier, have actually covered Colonia Dignidad on Red Handed before. But if you're in the mood for some more German crime after listening to us absolutely nail some German over here, 
I would highly recommend our episode on Mr. Armin Mivis. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Pulling that one out the bag. Oh, yes. He was the cannibal of Rottenburg. Oh, yeah. Well done. That's it. So, yes, come check that out. And uh, follow us on all the socials at Red Handed the Pod. Bye. Sinister Societies is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It's produced by Kristen Acevedo, Gemma Waters and Tracy Levy. Sound design by Kristen Acevedo with associate sound design by Kevin McAlpine. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro. Research by Chelsea Wood and fact-checking by Laurie Siegel. And we're your hosts, Hannah Maguire and Saruti Bala. <laughs>